0: Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a 3-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter consumervc for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Over the holidays, we're going to be releasing highlights from past episodes from this year every morning of Hanukkah and each day during the 12 days of Christmas. If you're a founder or investor and looking to meet more folks in the ecosystem, each week I host a networking event on my Upstream channel. The link is in the show notes to join on mobile. Looking forward to seeing you there. I'm excited to share highlights from my episode with Eric Paley, one of the managing partners of Founder Collective. Founder Collective's mission is to be the most aligned VC for founders at the seed stage. Some of Eric's investments include Uber, Cover Wallet, Geek, Whoop, and ThreadUp. So without further ado, here's Eric. I want to begin by asking you how you think about seed investing. Now you have pre seed and other emerging stages. What's your definition of seed?
1: It's a hard one to answer, actually, and, and it shouldn't be, but over the 11 years we've been doing this, it seems to have morphed a lot. People talk about pre seed. We, we often say seed plus for larger seeds that are not quite ready for a series A. Um, so I'd say it's sort of this um, spectrum. And there's enormous difference from one end to the other end of the spectrum, where it might be a quarter of a million dollar check at the pre-seed, and it could be sometimes five plus million dollars at the seed plus. I've even heard mango seed stage. So Um, We do all of that uh, range, but I think once we feel like it's crossed over to a Series A, it's not for us. And we tend to look at that as the amount of dollars going in combined with the pre-money valuation, creating a post-money that just ultimately feels larger than the phase we like to invest
0: in. More of like, in, in a funny way, defining what that Series A is. What are is there a certain type of valuation at the series A that might be too expensive?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's hard to put a specific number on it, but you know, I think as those valuations cross, you know, well into the double digits, you know, when that that first number in the double digits starts to look like a two, I, I think at some point you you can't help but say, look, this is really a series A deal with series A investors. And as folks that really try to be in early, we've stretched beyond our,
0: our, our sort of range. So talk to me a little bit about why you chose to start a seed fund originally.
1: I think as an entrepreneur, I had great VCs backing us, but I constantly felt like there was real misalignment um, between us and our, and our investors. And you have to appreciate that seed is actually still a relatively new thing. And when I started my company some years ago now in 2003, there really weren't seed investors. Maybe there were a few people who call themselves that, but there really, there was not a seed stage of investing. Most founders had to go and get a Series A as their first round of financing. And while that may sound appealing, oh, you get to skip to a Series A, the challenge of it was most founders couldn't get money. It was, the bar was extremely high because the lifecycle investors who are investing at the Series A Um, really saw themselves as putting in money now and over a long period of time. And they were nervous about putting in commitments now that they might feel like they had to follow on over time. And so they were very careful about where they made those commitments. And primarily, they were focused on repeat entrepreneurs. So it used to be the first time you founded a company, you probably weren't going to get capital. And if somehow you found a way to succeed or, or maybe get capital once you started demonstrating very significant traction. Once you succeeded with a company, the next time it was easy. And it's cer- certainly still true, it's easier the second time. But I think the seed stage has really powered first-time founders. And again, there's still, it can be very difficult to raise money, but there's now a lot of money for people doing this for the first time. And that that's what the seed stage created. And despite that we had these great investors in our company, because of that misalignment, I always felt like there must be a way to be much more aligned to the entrepreneur. And fortunately, we had an angel investor, Dave Frankel, who we always felt much more aligned to what we were doing in building that business than our investors. And largely, it was because he came in as an angel really, really early. And he wasn't there for the purpose of investing round after round. He really was there for that phase to be an angel and then to sit on the same side of the table as us going forward by diluting alongside us over time. And Dave Frank ultimately, as as you know, became my partner in in starting Founder Collective, along with our, our my co-founder of that company, Michael Rosenblum, who's my other partner. And we really set out to build this fund to institutionalize the kind of investing Gabe was doing that was so much more aligned for founders. In
0: terms of misalignment, I've heard you talk about ProRata very much favors the investor rather than the founder. Is that also what, what you're referring to in terms of uh, m- misalignment, just focusing on uh, in terms of following on, only following on on the C- series A rather than following on all through the next rounds?
1: Yeah, so when I was a founder, I had the misconception that ProRata was somehow positive for me that the idea that my investors might want to invest round after round was great because we're going to need capital and it's great to have people who have deep pockets. The reality is that your investors having a right, but not an obligation to write a check into your company round after round after round is a free option for them. It's a call option for them. And somebody sold them that option. And, you know, the, the big reveal is it's the founder who sold them that option. And because they have no obligation to actually write a check. It is never money that's in any way callable by the founder. In fact, the only place where a VC is asserting their prorata right is in a circumstance where you do not need their money. Because if you need their money, they have no reason to need a special right. You would ask for it and they would give it to you. The idea that that a VC has a codified special right to put money into the next round is specifically for the purpose of when you do not want that capital. So it really doesn't serve the founder's interests at all, right? If the founder had a choice whether to take the capital or not, and the VC wanted to put money in, that would be great. But that's not really how parata works. And it creates a very significant misalignment
0: as you're building your business. Switching gears a little bit, why are platforms so popular with venture capitalists? Yeah,
1: so I wrote a piece on this quite a while back called The Platform Paradox. You know, I think one of my frustrations as a VC is that many, many VCs haven't actually built a company as an entrepreneur, and that's fine. There are many great VCs who have not built a company, but when you've never built a company, it's like when you've never made a movie, right? You kind of have this high level view of all the ingredients that make a great movie, right? And that characteristic that makes a great movie is if it was all birthed at once. And I think the challenge is that Again, if you've never built a a company before, it's easy to look at platforms and say, what we're interested in investing in is platforms, as if they're all birthed as platforms, right? What I'm interested in having as a child is an Olympian, as if there isn't a process that might actually lead to all kinds of different outcomes besides being an Olympian, but becoming an Olympian doesn't happen at birth. And so the challenge is that it leads founders to believe that they should be from minute one pitching a platform. And I have never seen really good platforms birth from day one. There probably are a handful of exceptions. But usually what I see is companies launch products that are not platforms, but the product becomes successful enough that it can build an ecosystem around it. And then as it builds that ecosystem around it, it becomes more and more of a platform. Eventually, it truly is a platform. And then at some point, you know, like it becomes a wild success. And then those VCs who take a look at that company go, you see every great company should be birthed as a platform. But you know, it's it's sort of like, you know, you can't build a billion dollar company without building a million dollar company, right? Like I think VCs, because a lot of us have never done it, skip over these steps. Ambition's great, obviously you want ambitious founders, big vision is great, but but you can't skip over all these other steps along the way. And if you do, if you try to, I think you make a lot of mistakes, right? Because capital doesn't solve your problems you actually need to prove things are working somewhere along the way. And not usually can you instantly demonstrate that your platform is working.
0: What are some of the mistakes that you've seen if maybe an entrepreneur or a company is trying to build a platform too early?
1: Well, I think what happens is nothing happens, right? Like, I I think what happens is like they believe that if they were able to achieve their end state, everyone would want to be there. And so, everyone, despite that they're not at their end state, everyone should still want to be there. So, I'll try to give you an example. You know, eBay really launched as a collectibles auction. Pez dispensers and Disney figurines. I think if they had launched day one as we are an auction house for anything, they would have had crickets, right? Instead, they picked these niches that really were underserved and they were able to go to those customers offering, you know, it was a marketplace, but offering effects like a package product of here's a place you can trade these things that you can't easily do elsewhere and then it expanded from there but i think if day 1 they said everyone should want to be on this or you know yeah we think of apple is so powerful and we think of their their app ecosystem is so powerful but you have to appreciate that the iphone is not a massive success because it was birthed with an extraordinary app ecosystem. In fact, I think it was three or four years after the iPhone launched that it introduced apps for third-party developers. It really was because the iPhone was valuable and powerful and appreciated by customers that it made sense to bring third-party developers on board and that third-party developers would be excited to build for the platform because they had lots of customers and a great unique product. And then, of course, that augmented the value of the product and ultimately as a platform. So I I just think it's very, very difficult to skip over all of that. No, you've got to start by finding success with the product.
0: I wanted to also talk about total addressable market. Seems like market is, is often quite different amongst founders and investors when pitching. What are some mistakes when thinking about how big a market is?
1: Yeah, so I think VCs have to size markets and they're notoriously awful at it. So just notoriously like there there were many pieces written about how the entire market for uber was at most 1 to 2 billion and that's not revenue that's gross market opportunity let alone you know they take a 20% net on that so if you believe that the entire uber you know all of uber's market revenue opportunity was 200 to $400 million, right? Well, you know, we we know for sure that's not true, you know, as their, you know, their revenues are in the the tens of billions, right? And so not just their GMV, which is way higher. So markets are very misunderstood by VCs all the time, by the way, including myself. And I, I think people tend to be very surprised at what ultimately becomes really big companies. And so the onus on the entrepreneur, which is gonna always feel unfair, is to try to inspire the investor to understand that the opportunity is big. And I think the hard part is you can kind of do like one of these very uh, regimented tops down analyses or bottoms up analyses. You can quickly dissonance with the, uh, with the investor, right? They'll, they'll start arguing with you and um, you'll lose credibility. And so I think rather than trying to peg an exact market size, the, the real trick for the entrepreneur is to figure out how to tell a story that makes the investor believe the market's big. And if they can get their head around the market's big, they might not spend a lot of time trying to figure out if it's $5 billion or $15 billion. I mean, I'd go as far as saying every multi-billion dollar company we've invested in at some point struggled to convince people their market was big enough, which of course is ironic, right? You'd think it was all the companies that failed that struggled to articulate that but it's just not true. The very best, biggest companies, we uh, outcomes we've been part of struggle to at some point convince VCs of their market size. So I think market sizing is like a little bit of a trap for entrepreneurs. Um, and, the, and the trick is just to figure out how to get across the idea, this is big. If you can get across the idea, like if we do this right, it can be a big business, then you win. But if you get really bogged down in like, you know, is it, you know, what's the actual numerical value of the market? You're going to find yourself in a very tough conversation. Like what's the market size for Fitbit, you know, back when, I mean, I, you know, I met the founders back in the early days. I wasn't a VC yet. I think most people would have said, well, like, walking pedometers i don't know what is what was it probably a 40 million million dollar market like i don't did you know anyone had a walking pedometer before fitbit like there were some i mean i maybe met somebody but it became you know and, and obviously it's had its ups and downs but it became a very valuable company and i just think that's almost always the case that most of the very best companies build new categories themselves You know, we were, the company I founded, Brontes Technologies, was in the dental market, 3D imaging and and, uh, manufacturing and dentistry. And the company we looked to as our role model at the time was a company called Invisalign. And Invisalign, which is Align Technologies, and a lot of people know that company, very relevant to what we were doing. And the entire ortho market, when we were involved in it, if I remember correctly, it was like $7 billion. And I don't know the market cap of Invisalign today, but I think it's somewhere around 30 billion. So how do you imagine at the start of these things that the, a single business, sorry, it's 20 billion, I'm wrong. But a single business could be three times what was the perceived total market value. And I imagine if you did the analysis, Back then, as an analyst at a venture fund, you'd say, well, maybe if they get this right, they could get 20% of the 7 or $8 billion market, right? So what's that, right? You know, maybe they could be a a $1 billion, $2 billion business, something like that, right? And of course, you know, they're worth $20 billion right now. So I I just think VCs are classically bad at this. and, And the challenge is for the entrepreneur to sort of navigate that choppy conversation.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And that's part of the art, because you are building new categories. A couple of other investors I had on said that they're more worried about about companies that are currently trying to raise their Series A rather than seed rounds during these times. Wanted to just see how you're thinking about the seed round currently.
1: Well, I think there's more money than ever coming from the large funds into seed because in tough times, it's easier for them to write smaller checks uh, and sort of tip, dip a toe in the water. And so you're seeing a lot of capital. There's already a lot of capital at seed and now that money's coming in. And what I've noticed so far is Pricing really hasn't adjusted much at seed, and that feels wrong to me, although the stock market's been way up as well, uh, you know, maybe until yesterday. So may- maybe it, re- it does reflect sort of the overall capital markets, but it feels wrong to me because I think it's much harder to build businesses right now than it was previously. So I think seed is pretty much in the same place and there's capital flowing and w- at least we are continue to be quite active and but I agree I think it's harder to raise an A right now and a B and a C, right? I, I think it's harder to get people to lean into writing big checks for their for their you know big checks relative to what they're used to or their own bigger check in this moment. And so I, that is a concern and it may it may create a bit of indigestion where you know a whole bunch of companies continue to get seed but very a fewer, a smaller percent are, are converting to A than normal.
0: Have you ever invested in a company where you were actually unconvinced with their solution or, or, or what they were building? However, you had such conviction on the team and the problem that they were addressing and just how they were thinking?
1: I, I have. I won't name names, but yeah, we've made, we've made it Numerous investments where, at least I'd say I had apprehension about um, where, what the plan was in that moment. But I really liked how they thought about testing it and I believed in the people and I figured they would get there. The other thing I'd add to that is, I think it's important to recognize that as investors, we really often misunderstand markets. Like we don't actually know better than everyone else. We're really looking for the depth from the entrepreneur, partially because we don't want to start from the assumption that we know. So I can look at a business and say, eh, I'm not so sure about the market, but boy, this person is so deep. They probably are right.
0: That makes sense. Well, we'll touch on markets. How do you think about a great market that a company is maybe building and you really think it's a great market rather than a, a mediocre market?
1: I just really start from the place of like, if this works, could this be big? You know, I know it's very simplistic, but it's I try not to get too fixated on market sizing or, you know, is this a good market or a bad market? I guess there are things I disqualify as like, I just don't think that ever, like, I, I can't understand how that becomes a big business, you know, and may, maybe some of it will, right? Like, you know, but, um, and I'll be wrong. I mean, I'm wrong a lot, but but I have to believe, right? It has to make sense to me. So there are things I will say. I just I don't see it. It doesn't make any sense that this would get big. By the way, there really are. I can think of numerous examples over time of things I had trouble imagining how they'd get big, and they and they quite they got quite big. But but I just need to have enough to feel comfortable checking that box. Um, and there, you know, I, I think there are markets that don't look obvious on the surface that they'd be big, and they're really big. You know, I I led around in in Embark Veterinary. It's dog DNA testing business. My biggest fear, even when I led that round, is that, you know, the market just wouldn't be that big. Um, the business has grown exceptionally. And, you know, I think the business already is the size that I feared the, the entire limitation of the market might be. So I think I'm wrong. You know, I, well, I, look, the good news is I was right enough to invest. But the fear I had was completely wrong. And I just, you know, I think if you ask the average VC, you know, is dog DNA testing going to be a big market? I think we'd all be overly dismissive. And yet it turns out, you know, it's actually quite a big market. Or I've got another, I mean, an amazing one. Like, you know, I had apprehension when I I helped catalyze the first round of Joy Tunes, which is a company that teaches kids how to play the piano by creating tablet-based games that interprets from the piano the notes, and, and that drives the game. And I love the founder, and I thought the concept was super powerful. And despite that I played a role in catalyzing the round, and I wrote a check, I really had apprehension about how big it could be. And then every VC I introduced it to over time told me it couldn't be big. Company is growing unbelievably. It's it's one of the best companies in our portfolio. Just a spectacular business. Turns out, you know, all of those VCs were just completely wrong.
0: Well, good thing you're right. That's awesome. That's awesome. What are some of the differences when evaluating a B2C company versus a B2B company at the seed?
1: You know, I think one of the big differences is like ROI. You know, I I think B2B, usually there needs to be, I mean, there, there, there are sort of exceptions to this, but there needs to be some clear economic motivator for the buyer. And B2C, there does not at all need to be an economic motivator for the buyer, right? I think a lot of the B2B, the best B2C companies don't have any kind of economic motivator for the buyer. And that's Totally fine, but it's a different evaluation process, right? Like, you know, when, when you can really focus on meaningful hard ROI um, or sometimes like more soft, but like intellectually clear ROI, it is a very useful tool in evaluating a company. And that is definitely much more challenging if you're looking at like a really early stage, maybe no users yet, social network, <laughs> where there isn't going to be a, you know, economic return on investment. What you're really trying to understand is, why will the consumer care? What will energize them? Are there flows that will naturally grow the business? So I think, you know, the consumer really is such a different buyer. And there are ROI driven consumer opportunities as well. But but most of the good ones don't look that way.
0: And we've said this on the show a lot, but but kind of one of the fun things about A consumer and also nerve wracking things too is since consumers are fickle, it could be uh, in some ways a lot more challenging in terms of figuring out what actually would would stick with consumers.
1: I I think what's interesting is like when it comes to tech, I think consumers are less fickle than people like to say, like, I I certainly believe in fashion and other categories, entertainment, consumers can be very fickle. I mean, I guess what it, it depends what you mean a bit by fickle, but I, I don't see a lot of tech companies where like consumers really are incredibly energized and then they just change their minds. Um, I, I mean, it, it can happen for sure, but most, mostly, you know, when, it, when, it, when consumers seem to be really deeply engaging, you see some very
0: interesting things happen. That's actually a very fair point. What's, what's one piece of advice that you have for B2C founders?
1: You know, I, I won't make it specifically consumer. I, I would say this about all founders. You're, there are no adults. Um, it's, just, it's just you, right? I mean, you can utilize the intelligence and capability of the people around you, your investors, your co-founder, hopefully your um, team members. And I don't mean to say it's all on you but there's no one who's going to actually um, truly drive the integrity of the reason the business is truly valuable, except for you. And it's super easy to get caught up in all of the nonsense, the amount of money you raise, the amount of money your competitors raise, the, the number of mem- of team members you have versus some friend of yours who's running another company. You know, I, I wrote a piece a long time ago called Keeping Up With The Startup Joneses, right? And and the truth is none of that stuff really matters. What really matters is, are you creating really strong value? And are you compounding that value by investing more and more in making the product better and better and investing more and more in figuring out how to get it to your customer. And a lot of the other stuff is actually getting in the way. A lot of the stuff that is supposed to make your business more valuable and can be an enabler is actually multiplying negative compounding value, right? Um, It's just nobody's saying it and nobody's doing anything about it. And it really is on you to say, that doesn't make sense. Like, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna double my burn rate because my VC thinks I'm not going fast enough when I'm not sure that those are good investments. I, you know, I'm not going to try to live up to some arbitrary notion of the multi-billion dollar business somebody thinks I need to have tomorrow. I'm going to focus on building real value over time. And by the way, I want to go as fast as possible, but only as fast as we've instrumented for success. So you got you to gotta demonstrate that you can put a dollar in and get $2 out or, you know, whatever, whatever the right formula is. Maybe you're not monetizing yet, but if you're a consumer, but you've got to demonstrate that your your investment is paying off in the way you want. And then you could scale it like crazy. But if you're putting a dollar in and you're getting 50 cents back, and I just mean that as like negative compounding value, and a dollar can just be any form of resource. It could be CEO time, it could be anything. Um, but you're getting not high value out of that time. That's negative compounding value. And if you start investing in that, you'll destroy your business. Even if the supposed grownups are telling you you're doing the right thing.
0: No pressure, but it's all on you. Well,
1: I think you can bring everyone else into that conversation very effectively. But, you know, you, you can either choose to be the emperor who's wearing no clothes, and a lot of people will enable that, or you can be the one who's calling out constantly when somebody's not wearing clothes. Because at the end of the day, you know, like you want you want the success of the business. And all that other stuff makes it feel like you're being more successful. And all of the truth telling sometimes makes it feel like you're being less successful, but it's the only way you can actually be successful. And so there's like an odd paradox in there that every founder has to find their way through, but the BS
0: never builds the business. I think that's a great, that's a great piece of advice. Well, Eric, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on. My, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. If you enjoyed this, I highly recommend checking out Eric's full episode.